This week, gamers crack a quantum problem that's too tough for computers. We should really compare this to have a needle in a haystack and humans, but it's like closing their eyes, putting your hand into the haystack, and then they actually find the needle because they look in exactly the right location. And the brain's built-in backup mechanisms. Robustness in the brain is perhaps produced using uh, some of the same principles that engineers design into engineered systems. Plus the history and science of how we talk to ourselves. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 14th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. That average 21-year-old American is estimated to have spent over a year of their life playing video games. But is there any way that all this devoted attention could be channeled to solving important scientific problems? Here's Sabrina Maniscalco of the University of Turku in Finland. There had been before um, video games developed for tackling uh, certain problems which are computationally difficult to solve. But the surprising aspect is that it is possible to do this also for quantum problems. No wonder Sabrina's surprised. In the quantum world, particles can behave like waves, meaning that a single atom can act like it's in more than one place at once. But researchers are hoping that human intuition in this counterintuitive field can overcome some quantum problems that have outsmarted number crunching. Perhaps playing a computer game can help build a quantum computer. Quantum computers take advantage of the strange properties of the quantum world to do many calculations at the same time, quickly overtaking their classical counterparts. But performing calculations with the individual bits of a quantum computer while not tinkering with their fragile states isn't easy. Enter Quantum Moves, a game that simulates some tricky tasks that a quantum computer has to perform. Jacob Sherson, who led the research and made the game, explained to me the problem they were trying to solve. We need to perform operations quickly. And the reason we need to perform them quickly is that outside disturbances cause our atoms to lose their information on a typical timescale, which means we need to perform operations much faster than that. And that has proven to be a very big experimental challenge. One angle has been to take state-of-the-art computer algorithms, simulate the behavior of individual atoms, and find solutions. But then as we try to make them faster and faster, the quality of the solutions decreased. And here the operation that you're trying to perform quickly is moving an atom from one place to another with a laser. Now that doesn't necessarily sound so tricky until you remember that the atom's behaving more like a wave and so can kind of spread out all over the place. Was it hard turning this very abstract problem into a game? A major part of the work has really been putting it into form which was appealing enough for people to actually want to play it. Fortunately for us, We have an atom, and the atom is represented by something we call a wave function. And that wave function, when you move it around, tends to slosh very much like a liquid in a container, which means that we had sort of a classical analog of, of, of this liquid flowing around in a container that people could gather their intuition from. So how did people actually do it, the game, compared to computers? We compare player-generated solutions and computer-generated solutions at very, very short durations. And to our surprise, it turned out that although we have only a few thousand player playthroughs and hundreds of millions of computer attempts, there are still many instances in which the players have generated better solutions 
than all of these hundreds of millions of computer trials. We should really compare this to have a needle in a haystack and, and the computers, they try to search systematically and, and the wonder of this is that humans, but it's like closing their eyes, putting your hand into the haystack and then they actually find the needle because they look in exactly the right location. So the best human attempts at this game were better than the best computer attempts? Exactly. But we took this one step further. We took all the information from the players and fed that into the computer and let the computer optimize now, not based on its own initial guesses, but based on the player guesses. And then it turned out, if we combine the intuition of players informing initial guesses that are not perfect with the capabilities of computers at fine-tuning solutions, then we get solutions that are much, much superior to both what humans can generate and what computers can generate individually. Were you surprised by these results? Yes, extremely surprised because if I take the player solutions, it traces out a completely different type of solution than the one I would have imagined. So it seems that although I have a long education in quantum physics, I would attack the problem completely differently than people meeting it for the first time and reacting very intuitively. That was author Jacob Scherson. But, of course, the real question is how some choice members of the Nature team coped with the game. I'm seeing a very deep U-shaped loop, like a massive valley, Mm. and a kind of blue water-like substance moving around within it and I'm supposed to sort of nudge the valley with my mouse leftwards, like I'm reshaping a landscape with my mouse, but I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Oh my god, this is all over the place. Ah, my water just flowed uphill, is that supposed to happen? Well, it just seems to just be constantly wobbling, and I've never seen water do that before. So it's kind of a bit of, oh, oh, I've got loads of stars, I don't know how I did that. Okay, I'm going for a different maverick approach. (laughs) I seem to have just made more water go away. (laughs) Terrible. Terrible. I'm not going to use a quantum computer if it's like this. So maybe a real-life quantum physicist can cope a bit better. Sabrina Maniscalco, who we heard from earlier, has written a news and views about this paper. Surely she's perfectly placed to crack the problems. Well, I try to play the game, but I'm very bad at it. <laughs> I like very much the idea, but I'm not a gamer. <laughs> it's strange that players that have no knowledge whatsoever of the complicated mathematics behind quantum physics are able to solve, by playing a video game, open difficult problems in quantum physics. Could something like this actually help us move substantially towards being able to build quantum computers? If it is possible somehow to channel um, these abilities of players playing video games to solve complicated problems in quantum physics, this definitely could be very useful for research in quantum computers and in all quantum technologies at large. I have to say that it is just the first result, hopefully, uh, of a series uh, of investigations. (laughs) That was Sabrina Maniscalco of the University of Turku in Finland. Before her, you heard from Jacob Scherson, who's at Aarhus University in Denmark. Jacob's paper and Sabrina's news and views are both available at nature.com forward slash nature. To play quantum moves, head over to scienceathome.org. Or if quantum isn't really your style, try protein folding or wiring a piece of brain. Search for fold it or iWire, both all one word, to test your skills. When engineers build a system that needs to be reliable, 
anything from a transistor radio to a space shuttle, they often build in a bit of redundancy, a few circuits that do the same job in case one of them fails. Sometimes this is called fault tolerance, sometimes simply robustness. Here's researcher Sharul Druckmann of the Janelia Research Campus run by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. So imagine something like a space shuttle where you have multiple programs running. So the critical components, things that drive the engines and so on, are extremely robust. But the components that are not mission critical, I don't know, something like the astronaut's email or whatever it is, then we find that they're far, far less robust. Space shuttles aren't the only super complicated system that this applies to. The same principle is at work in the brain. The mouse brain in this case. Here's Shaul's colleague, Carol Svoboda. There is a large kind of body of research and knowledge uh, related to this term robustness. And I think what we found is that robustness in the brain is uh, perhaps produced using uh, some of the same principles that engineers design into engineered systems. Now, neuroscientists suspected that robustness is built into brains too, just as it is into engineered systems, because I guess we don't just go around forgetting everything routinely and not managing to make the right movements. Right, Karel? That's right. And it really hasn't been much on the radar. In the brain, it just hasn't been studied uh, very much. As you were saying, people may have suspected there would be redundancy on the behaviour level. Uh, But I think part of the interest in modern neuroscience is to take things that we would suspect happen on the behavior level and try to provide a more mechanistic uh, explanation in terms of the circuit properties and circuit dynamics and so on. And let's just go into the study in a bit more detail then. And it, it seems to be in two parts. One is there's some experimental work and the other is an attempt to line up a model um, with what's going on in the experiment. Um, if we start with the work that you did in mice, first of all, you actually tried to see how robust their brains were to disruption by simply <laughs> disrupting a bit of one hemisphere and seeing if the other half could kind of cope. Yeah, so what we did is uh, we have the mouse do a behavior that requires a short-term memory. And, and we, we knew that um, a particular brain activity in a particular brain area was related to the short-term memory. And so we wanted to study a robustness in this brain area, and we did this using a trick called optogenetics, which allows us to uh, manipulate activity in the brain and then uh, observe how and if and under what conditions uh, the activity related to the memory recovers after the perturbation. This is sort of the basic experiment. I suppose the next step on from that is to see, well, if this network is robust in some fashion, then the information must somehow get round from somewhere else. The mouse can carry on doing the behaviour, even with the disruption to this small motor plan. So the, the core observation was that even with large perturbations involving half the network or more, the activity recovered very rapidly. And so we surmised that there had to be another brain area that fed these highly specific signals, messages, back into the perturbed area. And one way that um, is you can think of the fine details of, of activity is, the, I recently saw this movie about the astronauts st- stranded in Mars, I forget the name. Uh, uh, the, oh, The Martian yeah, with Matt Damon. Yes. Right, right. And then there's at some part of the movie where they build sort of a copy of the same system that he has locally at NASA in order to be able to control and to see what he's trying to do. 
So on some level, it's a, as Carl was saying, it's a bit like that, right? That you have sort of two systems and the control, um, the normal route of one uh, can be used to control the other. I mean, even though you set out to study this robustness property, were you surprised to find, I guess, so much of it? I mean, it seems like quite a lot of, of energy that the brain puts into making these these copies of plans just in case the first one doesn't go right. Well, that's a, you know, that's also true in engineered systems, right? If you look at a uh, the circuit diagram of a transist- transistor radio, modern transistor radio, you see thousands of components um, that uh, uh, it seems unnecessarily complex because any hobbyist can tell you that a radio can be uh, put together from probably a dozen core components. All the other stuff in uh, the circuit diagram is related to robustness, to avoid feedback oscillations at different frequencies, to stabilize the power supply, and so on and so forth. How do you guys, just out of interest, how do you feel about the computer analogy, the engineering analogy, the, all these ones that people commonly use to describe the brain and then in the same breath they warn you off. They say, oh, it's not really like a computer at all. So there's sort of just the high-level comparison that you know a, a computer is a machine that computes and the brain is something that computes. But I think on the detailed level uh, comparison, then things become really interesting. right? So if you now ask me to design a computer that's like the brain, so you have a few hundred thousand or a few hundred million units, each simultaneously... Uh, connected with a few thousand others, constantly streaming information and non-linearly updating its internal dynamics, then I would argue that there are very few people, if at all, on the planet that actually know how to design a system like that. All these things, when we build computer systems, uh, they happen in a much simpler way. So I think one of the fascinating things is to try to push uh, our understanding of where does this analogy break. And to me, the fact is that the brain is a machine that computes. It computes in a very different way uh, then I can imagine how to build a computer, and I want to learn how it does it. That was Shaul Druckmann and Karel Svoboda, both at the Janelia Research Campus in Virginia. Coming up in the news chat, door-to-door canvassing reduces people's prejudice. But before that, it's time for the research highlights with Shamini Bundel. Ribose, a molecule that helps form the backbone of DNA and RNA, has been created in space-like conditions. This might go some way to explaining how such compounds could first have originated. Researchers first made a fake comet in a lab out of water, methanol and ammonia at a chilly minus 195 degrees Celsius. Then they pounded it with UV light, which simulates ice forming. The residues that formed when the team warmed it up contained ribose and other sugars. More evidence that comets could have seeded the molecules that made life possible on Earth. The paper is in science. Geneticists have found 13 people who have mutations that usually cause disease, but they're healthy. Disorders such as cystic fibrosis can be caused by a single gene mutation, and usually, if you have the gene, you'll have the condition. But in a study that looked at a whopping 590,000 genomes, this handful of 13 genetic superheroes emerged. Studying such people could teach scientists the secrets of disease resistance and hint at treatments. Find the results in Nature Biotechnology. Our voices showcase our personalities, display our emotions, convince, provoke or sadden others. And those are only the external expressions. Most people have their own inner monologue. And some people hear voices that aren't there. 
Psychologist Charles Fernyhoe at Durham University has written a book called The Voices Within, all about the history and science of how we talk to ourselves. Charles and I met to take a tour of a new exhibition about the voice, just opened in London's Welcome Collection. It's called This Is A Voice, and it spans everything from vocal production to trying to make computer voices sound human. It's an audio-focused exhibition, of course, so that's why you'll hear some sounds in the background. Also during the piece, you'll hear from a woman named Dolly, who relates her experiences of hearing voices. Charles Fernyhoe first wanted to show me a rather special account of voice hearing in one of the display boxes. Now, Charles, we've decided, somewhat ironically, for this audio-based exhibition to start with one of the most silent exhibits here, but it's rather wonderful, isn't it? We're standing in front of a case of medieval manuscripts. What you can see in front of you here is the book of Marjorie Kemp. This is the only copy of this book in existence. It was copied around about 1440. It is the first autobiography in the English language. Nobody before had ever written about their own life in the way that Marjorie does in this book. And for our purposes, it's particularly interesting because Marjorie heard voices. She heard voices that she thought were the voice of God, of Jesus Christ. And in a particular passage, she hears a voice that, that instructs her to leave her home in the town of Lynn, which is now Kings Lynn in Norfolk, and travel to the city of Norwich to meet with an anchoress known as Dame Julian. An anchoress was somebody who lived like a hermit attached to a church who would talk to people, would receive visitors and uh, dispense advice and so on. Marjorie was advised to go and meet with Julian because Julian also had expertise in these matters. She had had some extraordinary revelations of Jesus Christ and she spent the rest of her life thinking about these experiences and writing about them in two, two versions of her extraordinary text, which is the first book in, in, the, in the English language known to have been written by a woman. So you had two women, two extraordinary women, meeting for several days, according to Marjorie's account, talking about the voices in their heads. The idea of having these extraordinary manuscripts from 600 years ago is to show us several things about voice hearing, including their heterogeneity, just the sheer variety of these experiences, but also the ways in which people can take ownership of their experiences and make meaning of them. So Marjorie and Julian make sense of their experiences in a, a very particular, positive, powerful way, which many people today are, are doing as well. They told me to go recruit disciples. Um, he said, you can't change the war without disciples. So I went into Morrison's, and there was this guy trying to read which TCP was going to have. Was he going to have a small, smaller bottle or a big bottle? I said, you don't need TCP. You need Jesus in your life. He told me to F off. <laughs> the voices around the kind of Jesus thing were not harsh. They were quite benevolent. Benevolent but dangerous as well, because they would say, you know, you're invincible, step in front of a bus to prove it. So when someone comes to your lab to take part in a study on voice hearing or their own inner speech, um, what is that like? How, what kind of study protocols have you got in place? The traditional thing to do, of course, has been, been to give people a questionnaire. So. 
ask them to fill in a checklist about their experience and you get some numbers then that you can crunch and you can do some nice statistical analyses with. And we use those methods, but they're very limited, not least because we're not always very good judges about what goes on in our experience. We often come to the task of reporting on our experience with a lot of preconceptions. So for example, I used to have a preconception that I was doing in a speech, talking to myself in my head all the time. I'm much less certain of that now. That's partly because of a method that we've been using called descriptive experience sampling. In the old days, what people did in studying inner speech in the brain is they'd put someone into the fMRI uh, scanner and they would say, right, do some inner speech for me. Talk to yourself in your head for a, saying a particular utterance. And what you get when you do that is you get certain patterns of activation. You get the kind of language systems uh, focused on the left hemisphere of the brain kicking into action. We wanted to compare that standard paradigm with what happened when you waited for people to do inner speech spontaneously and you caught it using this very refined, specific method known as descriptive experience sampling. And so we did both. We did the standard paradigm and we did this waiting for inner speech to occur naturally. And we got totally different patterns of activation. And the implications are quite profound. When you put someone into a scanner and ask them to have an experience, you can't be sure that they're having anything like the kind of experience that you want them to have or that you're interested in. You were studying people who use their inner speech in the way that we all use it, you know, when we're going around the shops or remembering a phone number or that sort of thing. But what about clinically? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of evidence that hearing voices is, you know, a symptom of many common psychiatric conditions. Hearing voices is uh, strongly associated with the condition of schizophrenia. Hearing voices is also associated with a whole load of other psychiatric disorders. It's quite hard to find a psychiatric disorder, actually, that doesn't have some involvement of hearing voices. So everything from eating disorders to post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, the list goes on. The first time I was prescribed medication, I was about 21, I think. It, it was a horrible sensation of being so tired you could barely stand, but also needing to move because of the, the medication. I could still hear the voices, I was still depressed and I was still paranoid. And they, they kept saying to me, it'll get better, it'll get better, and it never did get better, to be quite honest. You know, none of the medications I've ever taken has taken my voices away, not a single one of them. The exhibition This Is A Voice is on at the Wellcome Collection in London from April the 14th to the end of July 2016. Charles Ferniho helped curate parts of the exhibition. His book The Voices Within is published in the UK on April the 14th and in the US later this year. The clips of Dolly were extracted from Voices in the Dark, an audio documentary by Chris Chapman, available at the online magazine mosaicscience.com. Thanks to the Mosaic team for letting us use them. Time now for our weekly news chat, and Heidi Ledford joins us from all the way in Boston. So, so the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine is about to meet to work out uh, GM regulation. Isn't this something that would have been worked out quite some time ago? Well, they did. So they worked it out about 30 years ago. Um, when genetically modified crops were first coming onto the market, but the technology then was quite different. And what they're seeing now is that you're having a new generation of crops coming along. They're being engineered in different ways, 
and some of those ways don't fall under the rubric of the old regulations. And it's not just a problem in the United States. This is a problem for regulators um, all around the world, really. So when we say some things aren't falling into this rubric, what are some examples of things which are currently sidestepping regulation? I would say the most popular and probably well-known method at the moment is uh, gene editing. There's a suite of methods that allow researchers to make very targeted changes to the genome. Um, you know, in the past, you know, say 30 years ago when the regulations were, were developed, researchers might grab a gene out of a bacterial genome, they might shove it into a, a corn genome, it would go in wherever it happened to land, you would just have to deal with it wherever it was, you couldn't tell it where to go. Um, and then you would, you know, grow your crop and go through the regulatory process. Nowadays, researchers can do something a bit different. They can make very targeted changes to the genome. They can say, okay, I'm just going to remove, um, you know, this one DNA letter right here in this particular gene. So why would more modern techniques need a different regulatory framework from the more kind of traditional genetic modification techniques out there? So. I I find, this, I find this question very interesting, um, and I think there's a lot of interesting science really behind it, because now what you can do is you can use these gene editing techniques to recreate a mutation that you might find in a crop's wild relative anyway. Um, so maybe you know a wild relative is more disease resistant, and you would like to have that feature in your crop that is already optimized for yield and taste or what have you. Now, instead of spending you know, decades maybe trying to breed in that disease resistance gene, you can just create it with a gene editing technique. So now what you've done is you've created a mutation that already exists in the wild. Should that be regulated the same way that crops where you've taken a gene from a bacteria and just stuck them randomly into the genome are regulated? Do we expect that new regulations which would come out of this meeting would help researchers by guiding them in how they do their research, or is it more likely to kind of hinder and hold things back? Well, it depends on which way the regulations go. Uh, this particular meeting, also I should say, is really looking at uh, sort of the scientific background and, and, and is meant to inform the regulators as they revise their regulations. Um, but definitely there are researchers, particularly in industry, who are very keen to find out uh, what way the United States and other countries are going to go on this issue. Uh, you know, I've been told over and over again uh, that little companies, they, they don't know how much to invest in developing a crop yet because they don't know whether or not they would have the money to send it through the regulatory process. Um, and I've been told, you know, there, some other companies have already started developing these crops, but they don't know what's going to happen to them down the road. Um, so it, it, there are quite a few people who are watching the outcomes of these decisions around the world, really, uh, with a great deal of interest. Moving on now to our second story for the week. There's, uh, there's just been a study on transphobia. That's uh, prejudice against people whose gender doesn't align with what they were assigned at birth. What did the authors find, first of all, about transphobia? So a couple of political scientists decided to find out whether or not you can change public attitudes about transphobia. And specifically, they were looking at canvassers, people who go door to door and, and talk to whoever opens the door. Often canvassers are trying to get someone to vote in a particular election for a, a particular person. But in this case, the canvassers were, were trying to address transphobia. Uh, and so then what they found, to be honest, I found a bit surprising. Um, they found that they could, that these sorts of conversations could reduce transphobia and about one in 10 people that they talked to. But not only that, um, the bit that surprised me, frankly, was that this effect lasted, so it lasted for about three months, and a few weeks into the study, the researchers showed these people 
uh, a political attack ad that portrayed transgender individuals in, in just a terrible, discriminatory way. Um, and then went back a few weeks after that to find out, you know, well, how is their transgender prejudice doing now? And uh, they found that the effects of the canvassing were still there, that these, the reduction in transphobia persisted over the long term. Now, wasn't there quite a similar controversial study in 2014? There was. That's right, there was. So um, in 2014, uh, another group of researchers published some very similar results, frankly. And they were looking at canvassing and how it could affect attitudes towards gay marriage. Um, that study came out, it got a lot of attention, um, and it also had very promising you know, conclusions that it looked as though the canvassing could impact attitudes towards gay marriage. Um, but then, I think roughly a year later, there were a lot of questions raised about the study, and it was eventually retracted. There were concerns that um, the data, had, well, some aspects of the study had been misrepresented. And is there more certainty in this case that these results will hold up? It looks that way. People in the field are quite optimistic about it. Um, the researchers who conducted this study, they were among the people who first raised the alarm about the previous study. Um, I've t I spoke to quite a few people about the designs of this study, and they said it looked quite rigorous. Um, it was, in fact, unusually rigorous for the field, and that uh, you know the, these authors have been very transparent about uh, what they were doing and, and how they collected their data. So there is, a, there is a fair amount of hope that this one will hold up. Heidi, thank you very much for joining us. Check out those news stories and others, of course, over at nature.com forward slash news. That's all for this week. Tune in next time to find out how pleasant weather might be putting people off climate action. And in the meantime, we'd always love to know your thoughts on the show, which bits you love and which bits you just really like a lot. Drop us an email on podcast at nature.com, tweet us at Nature Podcast. Or just give us a handful of stars and a review on iTunes. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Listener.